As you can tell from the title on the slide, this morning is, a, is an introductory message um, on Paul's letter that he wrote to churches in the area of Galatia, in modern-day Turkey. And um, if I may, before I pray and before I speak or teach, uh, if I may just share with you a, a bit of where I'm at with this, this uh, series. One of the most difficult things about preaching through Galatians or Romans, which is both books are about the essence of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the most difficult things um, is that many here already think they know it. And as a result of that, um, it's easy to close your ears thinking, well, I, I already know it. And so you kind of tune it out. And one of the things the Lord has shown me over the years is that, you know, when I first came to faith, I had a very superficial understanding of the gospel. And, and God has had a way over the years of just taking his word by his Holy Spirit and just scraping away my familiarity with the gospel and realizing that there is no end to it and its profound implications for all of life. Um, It is so full that you can't ever get to the bottom of it. So I just want to tell you ahead of time, don't commit the sin of thinking you know the gospel in its complete a completeness, and have your ears open to, to, the, to the Spirit and what He has to say, because it's really easy for our hearts to become callous to the things we think we know, all right? I mean, if I know Paul right, I mean, he said and he prayed for the, for the church that, um, that we would have the strength together with all the saints to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and um, the love of Christ, which is unsearchable. And that's the gospel contains those unsearchable heights and depths. And I just want to ask ahead of time that you would just humble yourself before the Lord and say, all right, Lord, um, show me. Just show me your goodness, all right? Um, with that, I'm on a journey with you, too. I have great expectations that the Lord will continue that in my life through this, this journey. So I'm on a journey with you, um, and I want him to just continue to, to show us the glory of Christ and the greatness of God that will spill over into uh, our lives and our families and our community, okay? So with that said, I want to just pray and commit our time to the Lord. Lord, you are good, and I pray ahead of time that you would soften the hearts of your people um, I, I do believe, just based upon what I've read in, in the history of your people, that one of the most dangerous things is to become familiar with essential truths. Um, and it's easy for us to think there's no life in them anymore, when in fact, that's where life is found. So I just ask in these days ahead, beginning this morning, that you would continue your work. And that work won't be done unless we humble ourselves before you and just say, Lord, please, um, I think I know this, but... I want to really know this, and I want to know this more deeply. Just blow us away and change our lives as a result of it. So will you, Holy Spirit, bless the teaching of your word this morning in Galatians, and, and may we have ears to hear and just soft hearts to understand. And we want to live as people freed, freed by the gospel, not enslaved either to the systems of this world or the systems of, of religion. So please bless us um, as your people. I know you love your people. And so bless us, Lord, with a renewed understanding, a refreshed understanding of your gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I was thinking about how to, how to start into this, and, and uh, there's an experience that my wife and I uh, had that, that, that fits. Um, it's interesting how each stage of life, God doesn't leave you in a place where you're not stretched, you know, where you're going, wow, I didn't think this would be a problem. Well, um, we're in a position where we are being stretched, and it's, it's by um, our teenage son who got his driver's permit. 
I asked him if I could use this with full permission because it really makes me look bad, not him. Um, but I didn't know when people told me, man, my, my kid's got his, his, uh, his driver's permit and this is scaring the tar out of me. And I thought, well, whatever, big deal. Uh, well, I will tell you that um, I, it is, I, I didn't know I had control issues quite to this extent until, you know, you hand the keys over to a teenager and they're sitting in the driver's seat. That means they're in control. Steering wheel, the, the, the gears, um, the brake, and the gas, the whole thing. And I'll tell you what, man, I just about come apart when, 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 when my son drives. Uh, just even the short drive from church, or I'm sorry, from home, it's about two miles, right? Just, what does it take? Six minutes, I think. Three, two worship songs. It takes two worship songs to get here. Um, from there to here, we cross over Waterman, and then there are all those lanes from I-80 and from Waterman, which becomes airbase that scissor together, and I feel it's going over I-80. And I'm serious. I, 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 I feel shortness of breath. Um, my heart rate goes up. Little beads of sweat begin to form up on my dome. I just imagine I kind of have a cauliflower look, you know, on top, just like, and I'm telling them the whole time what to do. You know, it's like, did you check your blind spot? Are you looking to the right, looking to the left? The, 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 the traffic is stopped, and he's not putting on the brake. And uh, I just feel myself in that moment. If I, there's no brake on this side of the car. They just, I'm pretty sure there's a dent there where you just like, I know your parents have gone through this. You just start grabbing hold, braking, and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, put on the brakes, look over to the right, look over to the left. Um, and you know what the thing is, is my, my son's actually a decent driver. I just have a real hard time um, releasing that much control to him in a way that could end my life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and um, I just, like I said, I just said, wanting to take over, wanting to say, over. Let's switch seats. So I don't really trust you with that much control over such a big piece of metal flying down the road, you know. Um, that's how I feel. And I know my son, if you were to ask him, and this is the God honest truth, which person do you like driving with the most, your mom or your dad? He would say without question or hesitation, absolutely my mom. Because my drag, dad drives me nuts. Um, that is just a, uh, and yet at the same time, if you were to ask Deanna, hey, is it hard for you to release control to the teenager? She'd say, absolutely. She gets tightness of breath too, you know. Um, but that is a, isn't that a tendency when you feel fearful about something or you doubt um, the capability of somebody, how easily it is out of that fear and doubt to, to, to take over and to want to manage and control and take the wheel and all that stuff. I mean, and that's not just a parental thing. That's, that's actually a, a, a human tendency that we have. We, we gravitate towards control and management and, can, um, and taking over, especially when we doubt the, um, the veracity of something or the capabilities or something, and we fear what's going to happen. We want to take control. And I've seen it in kids, too. I uh, had a little boy at my house, and he got a sliver in his, his foot, and he was hobbling up, saying, my, my, my foot are so bad, I can hardly walk, I got a sliver. And I said, well, sit down, and, and I looked up at his foot, and I said, you know, I got some tweezers, and I got ready to grab this thing, and he's like, no, 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 I'm going to take it out, right? And it struck me as I was doing that, my kids do that too. Like, if they have a sliver in their foot, now, who's the most capable person of, of pulling it out? It's the person who can actually see their foot with a steady hand and pull it out. But I'll tell you what, when I show up with a needle and I show up with tweezers, all of my children will say, no, 
I'm doing it. And they take it and they work at it for, I don't know, an hour and a half. Sometimes they never get it out. Because they fear the pain and they want to be able to control and manage it. I mean, it is a, a, a fundamental human urge to want to control and to, to manage and, and uh, because of fear and because of, of, of doubt. And un- unfortunately, that same gravitational tendency, that, that impulse, that inclination out of fear and doubt to take control, it, it easily works our way into our relationship with the Lord and into our Christianity and our walk with him. Um, doubting that he's really there or that he's really going to come through um, and fearing at the same time, what if he doesn't? We just easily grab hold of things. Um, we want to manage and we want to plan and work things out. We want to orchestrate from point A to point B. And, and, you know, in order to do that, we have to come up with systems and, 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 and ways or methods of, of doing that. And it's one of the ways that we can manage is, is gravitating towards systems. Um, and that happens in, in, in terms of Christianity, too, is that doubting the Lord, fearing what will happen if he doesn't show up, we want to create systems so that we can take ourselves from point A to point B. And that's either in terms of being accepted by the Lord, um, feeling a sense of peace with the Lord, or even growing in the Lord. We, we gravitate towards m- systems that we can manage because it puts us in that driver's seat. And um, the thing about the Bible is, and I, I hope everybody hears this, is it declares to us in no uncertain, bold terms that you as human, fallen, broken human beings cannot substantively fix yourself or the world. You cannot manage your way out of perishing. You can't do it. No matter what system you grab onto, um, what step process you put in place, you, by yourself, can't save yourself from the, from the um, perils of human corruption. You can't save the world. You can't save the planet. You can't save creation. You can't save your soul. You can't save your children. There's only one person who can. And that, 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 that declaration of the Bible that we cannot um, gives way to the Good news, or what the New Testament calls the gospel, just a word that means good news, of a historical fact that happened in history, um, that God provided everything we need, um, everything we need, and that God did that in the person and the work of his only begotten son, that is Jesus Christ. All, if you think of the whole entire Bible and, and the history of our our human race from beginning to end, it all turns on the life of one man living a life, dying a death, and rising again. So that, and the, and the, 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 um, the outworking of that is that God has provided in him, in him everything we need. He doesn't require us to perform so that we can be accepted by him. He, he, he um, doesn't call us to walk through a system of do this, then this, then this, then this. Work at this, work at this. Clean yourself up here, and then I'll accept you. Or, or grow by working hard. That The New Testament tells us that um, God has provided everything in Christ. Everything in Christ. And that's, good, that's why it's good news. Good news. Everything in Jesus. And yet, even people who have gotten that, 
who have realized that, you know what, and if you're to sum it up, the gospel, it might be something like this in, in terms of what Jesus done, but then how we're, to, we're supposed to respond is recognizing in our heart level that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Alone. We can't add anything to it. We can't subtract anything from it. There's no amount of performance, religious performance, that can provide anything additional that is already there. It's a gift. It's complete. And he says, trust. Just trust that I have completed your salvation, and I will complete your salvation. It's my work. It's not your working that makes that happen. So the gospel calls us to trust that simple truth. But even people who hear that, Easily, because we have the propensity to gravitate towards manageable things, which is what religion really is, um, not Christian religion, but religion is it's a way of managing the spiritual life or life or a future. It provides a set, a system by which we might change or grow or experience some kind of karma at the end of the, of the journey. And um, that tendency towards those systems is something that easily invades the church, and it has invaded the church over the past, I don't know, um, well, as long as the church has been around. Um, it, the people gravitate towards systems. They gravitate towards taking management and control of their own salvation. And that's what Paul addresses here in Galatians. Um, there's this church, or these churches in this area, um, that had heard Paul preach the gospel, right? Um, he came into town, and, 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 and later in the, the book, if you have a chance to read it, um, we will go through it eventually, but you'll, you'll learn that they, they responded to what Paul told them about what Jesus had done for them. You know, he had taken away your curse, he's, he's paid for your sin, he offers you eternal life, and he offers you a full-fledged membership in the family of God. And that's not something you have to do anything to get other than just simply trust that it's true. And the Galatian people heard that, these, these non-Jewish people. They heard that it's by faith in Jesus alone and what he's done that, that they now have a place in the family. They have hope. They have eternal life. They have the future of resurrection, all these wonderful things. And they responded with great joy. Uh, and they embraced the Apostle Paul as one of their own, just so excited, so happy, so freed. That's what the gospel does is it frees. But after Paul left this, this, these churches, um, someone else came in with a slightly different teaching, or we might say some added instructions. All right? Follow this, please. Um, added instructions. That is, they came to these newer believers who are, have experienced the freedom of what Jesus has done, the gospel, that God has essentially, and Jesus done it all for them. And, and, and they said, wait a second. You're almost there. But there's a couple steps you still need to take. And I can imagine them, because I can imagine myself, if I didn't really know this very well, saying, you know what, um, you know when Moses told the people of God that there was a sign of entering into the family, you know what that, that, that sign was? It's, it's circumcision. And, and you, you non-Jewish believers, you, you haven't done that yet. So you, in order to make this whole deal complete, you've got to take this extra step. I mean, and you can hear him going, they could open a chapter and verse and say, it's right here. It's the sign of entering the covenant community, the community of faith, or being part of the commonwealth of Israel. You've got to go through this step. And they could point to a verse. And, and for, you know, centuries, the Jewish people believed that because that's what the Old Testament taught them. So you can imagine why someone would come along saying, wait a second, wait a second. It's Jesus, yes, but there's still other things you need to do. One of them is circumcision. Oh, by the way, 
it's, it's really important if you're going to identify with the true people of God that you clean up your, your diet a little bit. The Lord doesn't like it when you have crab and lobster and bacon. You've got to weed that out of your diet. And once you do, well, then you're going to be closer to being in the family of God. And what they were essentially doing is forcing Christians to become Jewish. And Paul's going to argue that when Jesus came, everything changed. That the, the center of how we are supposed to relate to the Lord is no longer defined by what Moses handed the people from Mount Sinai, but what Jesus did for the people on Mount Calvary. And that that is now how we're supposed to relate to the Lord through Jesus and what Jesus has done. So this old way of relating is outdated, and this new way is the only way. That is through the Son of God. And he has done everything you need. He has performed everything in the Old Testament on your behalf as a substitute. So it's perfect for performance, as well as he took away all the negative bad stuff that you did in your life, enabling you to live um, at peace with the Lord and the hope of one day seeing him face to face. So... That's what Paul's going to argue in the letter. And he's also smart enough to know. Okay, if you can just imagine this circle right here being the the true gospel or good news that teaches us that God has in Christ done everything we need to be accepted by him. We simply need to truly trust him. And this over here is what we might call the system, the circle over here, a platform, a system of performance, things we need to do, like circumcision, clean up your diet. And you could add a lot of things to this, like being baptized or going to church or giving or serving or, or donating to charity or to the, you know, whatever it is. This over here is a whole, all which are good things. But if we ever think that somehow this adds to this, then Paul would say that we are breaking distorting the gospel and enslaving ourselves. If you can think of performance-based religion as a, as a treadmill, a treadmill is a, it's just one of those pictures that I was thinking of that's, in one sense, I lo- you know, many of you probably have them at your house, and it's a good thing it gives you exercise and so forth, but if you think about it, it's ludicrous. You, know, you work really hard, you run really fast, you sweat, and you never go anywhere. If you were to take an ancient person, like in Jesus' day, that had to rely on walking and running to actually get to places, bring them to a modern-day gym and see all these people just working up a sweat, just running and going nowhere, they'd probably think, what in the world are you doing? But this kind of performance-based religion where you are, you're doing this and then this and then this, hoping that you're somehow going to be approved when you get past this life, It's like running on a treadmill. Not only does it make you, not make you righteous, but you never get anywhere. That's what we call treadmill systems, but you can control them kind of. You can get up on them and, you know, put in your thing and run and make you feel like you're actually making somewhere. Meanwhile, you've neglected this thing called the gospel of grace alone through faith in Christ alone, that God has done it for you. You don't have to perform to be accepted by him. You don't have to perform to actually grow in grace either. And Paul knew if you accept circumcision, which is in the law of Moses, you accept diet, it's in the law of Moses, then you know what? You have to accept all the rest of the 613 laws too. You can't pick and choose. 
So you want to get on that treadmill, you better accept all 613 and, and keep those steps up because unless you do that perfectly, there is no righteousness for you. So he knew, stepping off this platform of, of grace alone to this treadmill of human performance was to contradict itself and put the people of God back in a position of slavery. Have you ever tried to have a relationship where you felt like you constantly had to measure up to get the other person's approval? And if you did something wrong, well, then, then you had to kind of work your way up again. And if that person gave you something, it was always with strings that if you didn't, like, show up at the family birthday, well, then you were shunned because they have the strings. That kind of a relationship where you can never measure up or you keep performing or a relationship where the gift comes with strings is actually an oppressive relationship. It's an enslaving relationship. And God will not have that kind of relationship with us where he's like, well, you got to add a little bit more, add a little bit more. And the bottom line is we're sinners, so whatever we add is still sinful. God's not like that. He will not allow us to live in that kind of oppressive relationship with him. It belittles, diminishes the vastness of his gracious love. And at the same time, it makes much of what we can contribute to him. As if me on the treadmill does anything for the Lord. Saying, no, I've made the way. I have provided everything. I have performed for you on behalf. I have paid for you. This is what you need to accept. It's like accepting the gift. You can't earn it. You accept it. And if you don't, it's slavery. And that's part of his concern. Just let me rattle off a a number of verses here so you kind of get the center of his concern for the people of God if they do this kind of Jesus plus treadmill religion. Galatians 2.4. There were those in Jerusalem, and he's speaking of his experience when he visited there, Jewish people who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they may bring us into slavery. They wanted to bring us back onto the treadmill. Uh, Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive. That's That's a slavery word, held captive against the will. Under the law, imprisoned, and that's the law of Moses. Imprisoned. Galatians 4, 3 through 5. We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. There's slavery. But, verse 4 switches. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus is the key to freedom, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not slaves, but sons. And sons and freedom are synonymous in Paul's thought. Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 9, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that were by nature not gods. But now, now he switches it, you were once enslaved, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? They're weak and worthless principles, this, this kind of treadmill. You work really hard, you sweat a lot, but you don't get anywhere. That's why he says it doesn't work. Of the world whose slaves you want to once, uh, you want to be once more? Like, really, you want to go back to that? It's like a person who's been delivered from alcoholism who decides, I want to go back to it. It's like, well, you really want to go back to the enslavement. Galatians 4.31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but the free woman. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You can hear the voice of William Wallace saying, freedom, all through this book, you know. Or Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Freedom, that's what, that's what this is about. Now, it's easy to read this book and think, well, you know, Paul's getting all theological. He's debating the finer points of doctrines. And it doesn't relate to life. And, and yet, at the center of this is the issue of slavery or freedom. That is, that is deeply relevant to human nature. The difference between slavery and freedom. And it comes from a heart that wants God's people to be what God has designed them to be, which is free in him. Not enslaved, not on the treadmill once again, hoping, will the Lord accept me? Will the Lord accept me when I, when I pass beyond this life? Will he accept me? Does he accept me now? Do I just keep working? And at what point do I get to rest? His concern is, is that the people of God not be enslaved, but live in, in freedom. This is a heart of love, the part of, heart of an apostle who deeply cares about where people are at. You know? This isn't just doctrine. This isn't just theology. This is, this is freedom versus slavery. And we, whether we know this truth deeply or not, are going to experience either slavery if we don't know it, or if we truly know it, the freedom of what it means to be a son or a daughter of the Lord. And that is imminently, deeply, intensely relevant to us. So his thing is, you've got to get the gospel right. And don't mix treadmill and gospel. Don't mix treadmill, which doesn't work, it doesn't get you anywhere, with what I have done for you in Jesus. And this calls you simply to trust and embrace it as true. And it will produce a massive change in your life. What's at stake? You might say, why is Paul you know, upset. Well, if the scourge of slavery is not enough, just to kind of give you an idea of how serious of an issue this is for him, because it's very personal and it's very, very serious, um, consider his language. There is no letter by the Apostle Paul with his pointed, blunt, sharp, Perhaps in some sense obscene. In the opening of his letter, he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, that's adding the doing of the treadmill with what Christ has done for you, um, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Literal translation, English language, damned. Let him be damned. That is a sanctified swear word in this particular context. Because he's coming out swinging. The gloves are off. He's deeply concerned out of love. And if we didn't get it the first time, he he swears again. And don't don't make this a justification, kids, for swearing. But this is, he's serious. He says, as if, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be damned. That's what the word damned means. It means cursed. I curse you. I damn you. That's why we don't say that word in normal conversation. But that's what he's saying. He is dead serious about this. Um, in addressing the people that he loves, he actually, you get the sense he's, if you ever wanted to shake somebody because they're just acting so 
dumb. Like, what are you doing? He doesn't address any other church like this. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. He's talking to Christians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Like, what in the world are you thinking? You're under a spell. You're deluded. You're going back. Or in chapter 5, verse 12. I wish that those who unsettle you, those who are trying to add on to what Jesus has done, would emasculate themselves. And you look up that word in either English or Greek, it's gross. Said so if you're going to require circumcision, go for amputation. That's what he's saying. It's gross and it is graphic. But does that give you an idea? Like, this apostle's ticked off. Like, he's upset. Because he cares so much. Because the Lord cares so much about his people living in freedom. And yet they're going back into this enslaving, ladder-climbing kind of religion. That's why he's concerned. Or 5.4. He even goes so far to say, if you accept and embrace these both as a settled position, which is a contradiction, he says, then you are severed from Christ. Now, can you think of a stronger statement to be severed from Christ, to be severed from life, is to be severed from eternity, is to face uh, God's judgment alone and to pay personally for all of the things that you have done? That's, that's a scary statement. Severed. In other words, it's all on the line here in getting this thing we call the good news of the fact that God has done everything for our salvation on our behalf through his son, through his life, death, resurrection, and his coming again. And he is the one who will save us in every way we need saving. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. He's going to be the one to fix the cosmos and the creation. Not us. And to accept that he is in fact the fullness of God's salvation for us. And to simply trust him. Everything's on the line if you get those two confused. Or you get them mixed. So what's the solution? Kind of seeing those, his concern about the slavery of mixing, mixing Jesus plus the treadmill kind of idea. Um, seeing that it's serious, both by the language and also by that statement, you have severed yourself from Christ. If this is the direction you're going to go, you can't have it both ways. What, how, how do you get back? And that's where, you know, this, this letter is going to just bring him back to the center um, so that their freedom might be regained. You know, there's this uh, famous quote by um, Thomas Jefferson. Many of you have heard it on a movie, I'm sure. That um, was taken out of a, a letter that he wrote to a friend in France, a man by the name of William Smith. And the quote goes like this. He said, The tree of liberty needs to be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. tree of liberty needs to be refreshed from time to time. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with that statement with some strong qualifications. He would point first and foremost to say there is only one, one tree of liberty, and that's the tree on which Jesus died for us, and in which and out of which our liberty comes. Second of all, the only blood that's going to pay for that liberty is not ours, but his. That's what he'd say. But then I think he would say that tree, that understanding of our salvation in Christ needs to be refreshed in every generation, by every individual, every day, every week, every month, because it's lost so easily. 
And that's why he's written the book, to bring us back to the center. It's like, don't forget that Jesus has freed you from the curse, to, from the curse of, of the law. That is the, the, the wrath that follows it. Our world is under a curse. And we haven't seen the full weight of what that curse will bring. The, the worst of, of history's cataclysms are but dim touches of what will happen when this planet falls into the hands of a living God. And yet, God himself, in his love for us, made a way and said, I will take that for you. So imagine if we actually knew, I'm free from that. I know 21st century people don't, like to, don't believe in a judgment anymore, but the fact of the matter is, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's everywhere. And whether we believe it or not, it's still going to happen. And still to know, I'm freed from that. Or that he will say that in Christ and the spirit that he gives alone is the power to move on in growth and perfection. It's not going to be found in getting on the treadmill. It's going to be found in centering yourself completely and fully upon the work of Christ and the spirit of Christ. So he's the one who's going to take us from glory to glory. He's the one who's going to transform us. It's not something we can do by running harder. And then as a result of that, we realize we don't have to be on this treadmill anymore. We don't have to be on this treadmill anymore. And part of my suspicion and my fear is that there are many Christians, even at Parkway, who are confused. And they're trying to run, not getting anywhere. Meanwhile, they're saying, well, I believe in this, but it doesn't work. Because I could hear people right now saying, Dan, I, I get what you're saying. It doesn't work. I know what you're saying. It doesn't work. To that question, I think it's important, and this has helped me immensely, to draw a difference between what we might call a stated belief versus a functional belief. A stated belief has to do with what you say you believe. That's why it's a stated belief. Um, A functional belief is actually what functions in your life upon which your life operates. That is, it makes a difference. Stated belief versus a functional belief. Ideally, those should be the same. What we say we believe, gospel, is what functions in our life. But what can easily, all too easily happen, is those can be two very different things. What you say you believe actually is not functioning in your life as a true inner belief. It's not governing things. So, to, to use a concrete example, if a, if a husband said, I believe, this is a stated belief, I believe that my wife and children are more important than my job. Stated belief. I believe wife, children, more important than job. But... If in his actions he spends nearly all of his time at work neglecting his wife and kids, rarely coming home, what's his functional belief? It's not what he says. In fact, if you were to dig down underneath the statements, the functional belief is his job is more important. And you can say and what functions as belief are two different things. That means it's entirely possible in this room right now that there are people who are saying, yes, I believe this. But functionally in your life, you're depending upon other things. You're on the treadmill. And it's the functional belief that matters. It's what actually functions in your life. 
And if, if, if you say one thing, but the, the function is quite different, there's no functional belief in, in this gospel, we call it over here, well, then you maybe have to go back to the beginning and ask the question, do I really believe? Or maybe over time you've lost it, like the Galatians obviously had lost that sense. And it's time to come back to the center. And I, don't, I want it to function in my life. I don't want to just know I'm free in my speech. I want to experience freedom in my life. That's functional. Now, I said something at the beginning, at least I think I did, I did in the first service, um, that I believe, and I think history has proven it, that every generation needs to refresh itself in this, this gospel, which Galatians so powerfully articulates. Um, how... How, did, how does it hit us in our time, you know? I mean, in Paul's day, the issue was different than our day. They were struggling with uh, slavery to adding the law of Moses to the gospel. In the 16th century, any of you ever heard about the Protestant Reformation? You know, a young Augustinian monk, monk studying the scriptures, a man by the name of Martin Luther realizes, looks around and he realizes, wow, the church has gone back to slavery, only not slavery to the law of Moses, but slavery to the law of the Vatican. And now there's all these elaborate performances you have to do in order to be accepted by God, whether it's going through the baptism or confirmation or penance and, and so forth. And pretty soon people are on the treadmill again. And, and so he said, this isn't wrong. We've got to get back to the, to the gospel. The fact that people are accepted not on the basis of all these things, but on the basis of Christ alone. And freedom broke out in Europe. But I look around today and problem isn't so much with the Vatican anymore, at least not in these circles. I think it's highly likely that we just replace old systems with new systems. And we functionally believe that if I'm going to be accepted by the Lord, feel good about myself, feel at peace with the Lord, if I'm going to somehow make up for my failures, well, then I've got to read the Bible more, I need to pray more, I need to serve more, I need to go to church more, I need to give to charity more. All of which are good things in their proper place, rightly motivated for the right purpose set in the context of the gospel. But I'll tell you, it's all too easy to, to slide from dependence upon Christ to dependence upon the system. We mustn't think for one second that Bible reading, prayer, giving, church attendance adds anything to what he's already done to give us acceptance to the Lord. And those things, in fact, are to be used in the freedom of knowing we're already his. We're already sons and daughters. And that's what the freedom is. You are sons. Sons. Not slaves, but sons. And to live that out. There's another. So I, it's highly possible that, you know, some of you in, functionally are trusting in your performance, just the different performance. If you want a good gauge or test, Look how you respond to either moral failure or your successes. Moral failure, whether you've lied to your wife, looked at pornography, spent more money than you should have, whatever it is, and, and, and to see how you respond. Do you respond by, like, loathing yourself and saying, man, how could I have ever done that? Putting yourself in a place of, I've got to do some penance in order to feel right with the Lord again. I need to read more, pray more. Well, if that's your approach or your response to to the failure, well, then you're probably on this treadmill thing and you're confused. This isn't going to get you back to where you need to be. There's only one thing to get you where you need to be, and that's Christ, Christ alone and his grace. 
or in your successes. You do something good, do you kind of well up with a sense of self-congratulation? Wow, I feel good about myself. Or is there a sense of dropping to your knees and grateful praise to the Lord who, who for undeserving reasons used you, blessed you? So it's very possible that the church has created systems and we easily adopt them as a means of our salvation. And it's not. Confusing. I think there's another system that's at work in people's lives that's uh, perhaps far more insidious, and that is there is also a system in our world that assigns measures and weights and worth and value based upon how you measure up to these unstated standards that we all feel but are rarely spoken. That is how thin you are, how tall you are, short you are, where you live, what you drive, clothes you wear, what you've achieved, the number of letters behind your name, how much you bring in every month. Um, And all of those things, our world, though we don't want to get caught in it, we do into the measures and weights and establishing of value and importance and worthiness based upon this. And unfortunately, many of God's people have found themselves on the treadmill of trying to um, secure their life in this system. It is the world system. It is not the system of the kingdom. And it, if we adopt it as our own or our central belief, then we become slaves. Slaves. Imagine with me for a moment two scenarios. In our first century, first century slave who might have heard Paul speak a slave who had no rights of his own, um, couldn't own anything, and there was absolutely no way of removing himself from his estate. He was born a slave, he's going to die a slave, bottom rung. Kind of, of, of position where you couldn't even look at people in the eyes when you went into the marketplace to buy food for your master. It's like bottom rung. And we don't have a slave caste in our society, but I think of the little boy who's never chosen to play football or baseball and the shame that he feels, and I think that's probably what a slave would feel like in, in first century. And Paul comes along and he says, you know what? Everything's changed. Let me tell you about a, a God who created all things who came down to become a slave. The barrier burden of sin so that, you know what? You could become not a slave, but a son. And not just the son of anybody, the son of the Most High. A co-heir with Christ, the the rightful king of this world. A brother, somebody who he will share his reign with. Do you know what that does in the heart of a slave to hear that I am now, because of what Jesus has done, a son? And that what defines me is not my slave title, but the fact that in Christ I am a son of God. That he could come into a church where there is, and this is to quote Paul, where there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Both praising the Lord because they are free to be the sons of God. It also humbles the man of high stature who puts way too much confidence in his, his wealth or his position. Because what the gospel says to a person who is farther up the ladder is, you know what, none of that matters here. In the kingdom, that doesn't matter how much you make, what your title is, how many accomplishments. It doesn't matter one iota. The only thing that matters is Christ. That frees 
the rich man from the enslavement of his wealth. And he experiences humble freedom. Or another one, you see a, an elderly woman looking in the mirror. She looks at the lines on her face. And she's not as thin as she used to be. One of the measures and weights of our world. And she feels, looking at herself in her faded beauty, and she feels a sense of diminished self-worth. At that moment, the gospel of freedom needs to be heard. She needs to hear that tree refreshed of the voice of the Holy Spirit say through the gospel, you know what? I am your shepherd. I am your groom. I am the Alpha, the Omega. I am the one who's the resurrection and life. I fix broken people, and I will raise you to life. And though you're withering away outwardly, inwardly by my spirit, I am renewing you day after day after day. And child of God, what defines you now is not your wrinkles or your age or your weight, but the simple fact that you are my daughter. You know, and I can just imagine a woman going, freedom. That's what the gospel does is it frees us in in so many different ways that the world tries to chain us and, and establish worth, and the gospel blows all of that away and brings freedom for God's people, and that's my hope. That's my prayer for us. In the different ways that God, not that God, but the world has chained you, or maybe you've chained yourself through a false understanding of Christianity that God would just open up those, those doors and, and break those chains and allow us to live in the freedom of sons and daughters of the Lord in joy and praise and strength and gratitude to our Lord. And that's, that's where I hope we're going, and, and I hope you'll see that the gospel frees. And it won't be just a stated belief, but a functional belief as we trust in him. Right? Lord, please. Make this a reality. Um, bring those stated beliefs into functional beliefs. Help us to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Um, help us to hope in Christ, in Christ alone, for he is our Savior. He is the one who paid it all. He is the one who gave everything and promises to come and restore everything. Pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing one.